Anders Ericsson is a professor of psychology at Florida State University. He's spent decades studying how is it that people come to be experts in various different fields. He's published a fascinating and accessible book summarizing his findings titled Peak. Has anyone read Peak? It's really quite good. Uh, So it's referring to the process of how do you develop peak performance. Uh, and, and perhaps his most important insight is that the more he investigated people that supposedly had all this lucky natural talent, the more convinced he became that there was actually a whole lot of intense, extended, deliberate practice um, required to develop extraordinary peak performance. Let's start by taking a closer look at the legend of Mozart. In 1763, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart was seven years old, but he was already wowing audiences in his hometown of Salzburg, Austria, with his abilities both on the violin and with various keyboard instruments. The young Mozart could also, without looking or even from another room, identify the precise note being played on any musical instrument. As if that wasn't enough, he could identify the notes on anything that was sufficiently musical. The chime on a clock, the toll on a bell, the achoo of a sneeze. Now, since even most adult professional musicians don't have perfect pitch, or what's technically known as absolute pitch, this ability further contributed to this legend of the young Mozart as this prodigy born with preternatural gifts. But we know today that approximately 1 in 10,000 people have perfect pitch, 1 in 10,000. And until quite recently, it was thought that perfect pitch was this innate gift that a lucky few are born with. But then scientists began to notice some intriguing patterns that among those 1 in 10,000, they weren't distributed randomly, that you were much more likely to have per- perfect pitch if you began musical training if you, when you were be- between 3 and 5 years old, or if you grew up speaking a language that was tonal, in which the meaning of words is dependent on their pitch, for example, Mandarin or Vietnamese. And now here's where it gets even more interesting. In 2014, a psychologist conducted an experiment of 24 children between the ages of 2 and 6 to discover was it possible to teach them to have perfect pitch. The children were given four or five short training sessions per day, each lasting just a few minutes. The sessions involved learning to identify various piano chords just hearing the sound, not by looking at them being played. So keep in mind, typically only one in 10,000 people have perfect pitch. But after 18 months or less, every one of the children in the study had developed perfect pitch. Current research shows that although it is possible for some adults to cultivate perfect pitch, it takes a whole lot of effort in most cases, and it is much easier for children who are younger than six. 
More generally, studies indicate there actually are certain abilities that can be developed or much more, can only be developed or are much more easily developed before the age of six or 12 or 18, depending on what we're talking about. You know, a full turnout in ballet or things like that, that your, your body changes or your brain changes after a certain point. But it used to be thought that your brain sort of, when you were an adult, was, had sort of solidified, had sort of, and it turns out our brains continue to have a whole lot more plasticity than was previously thought. So that both the brain and the body retain a great deal of adaptability throughout adulthood. And this adaptability makes it possible for adults, even older adults, to develop a wide range of new capabilities with the right commitment and training. Uh, Diving deeper into that Mozart legend in our globalized internet age, we have access to something that 18th century Europeans did not. Childhood virtuosos like Mozart have expanded our awareness about what is possible, and we've developed these increasingly sophisticated training programs as a result. In particular, since the mid-20th century, the Suzuki method has been regularly producing five- and six-year-olds with remarkable musical abilities. And you can Google YouTube videos of four-year-olds playing the violin and the piano with remarkable facility. You know, it just takes a slightly, like, neurotic parent, right? That's, that's like, the main thing you need, right? Uh, I'm not, so I hope the result of the, ser- the, the sermon isn't, like, creating diabolically focused parenting. It's, uh, anyway. Uh, Mozart did not have the Suzuki method, but he did have a father who was this unfulfilled professional musician who sought to live out his unfulfilled potential through his children, his unfulfilled dreams. Starting before age four, Mozart was being trained not only in musical appreciation, but in how to play multiple instruments, as well as how to compose for multiple instruments. Unlike most of those children for the Suzuki method, most of them are sort of laser-focused on the violin or laser-focused on the piano. So his father was teaching him all of the many, many instruments at once. Musical scholars have also shown that these claims about Mozart, that he was composing at six and eight years old, those are almost certainly overstated. The um, original compositions that Wolfgang supposedly wrote are actually in his father Leopold's handwriting. And the piano concertos that Wolfgang allegedly composed at 11 were all based on relatively unknown sonatas by other people. So plagiarized. The first serious compositions that we can contribute to Wolfgang Mozart with certainty were written when he was 15 and 16. Still impressive, but not quite preternatural. And that was after more than a decade of serious practice under his father's tutelage. Erickson has found a similar dynamic with every child prodigy that he has researched, that there is always intense, deliberate practice um, with these, in the background of these children, who make advanced techniques appear easy, appear to be natural talent to those of us who only see the performance and we don't see all the practice that made that performance possible. Or to use an example from the world of sports, the Canadian hockey star, um, Mario Lemieux. He was the youngest of three brothers. He is an incredible hockey player and was so from a very young age. But his, you know, being the youngest of three brothers, he was taught to skate almost from the time he could walk. His father would you know, manufacture these ways to actually have ice in their front yard. I mean, he was just constantly playing hockey and he got better as a result. Indeed, there are many professional athletes who in 
moments of honesty will confess that they actually sometimes resent this perception that they have all this natural talent because it masks the thousands of hours that they know they have spent cultivating these abilities. Even the studies of savants have shown that their extraordinary abilities, like these uh, rapid calendar calculations, those actually come from this um, repeated, extended focus over time to be able to do these things, this intensely focused practice. And those same savant-like skills have been replicated by training anyone in uh, mental calculation methods for, you know, that are really focused over a relatively short amount of time. Uh, anyone can do these same sorts of calculations. Erickson encapsulates the essential process for teaching peak performance as the three Fs, focus, feedback, and fix it. We know whatever your feedback is telling you, fix it, and then refocus on that new way. For example, I'm an amateur runner, but when I go running, I'm, I'm usually podcasting, I'm usually you know, listening to music. But according to Erickson's method, if I really wanted to become, you know, to reach peak performance in my running, I'd need to stop podcasting and really focus the whole time. I'd need to focus on my stride, on my technique, on my pace. I'd need to continually then fix my running accordingly. I'd need to hire a running coach and then fix it based on that. For better or worse, I'm content being an amateur runner. Uh, and it's important to be honest that due to finite time, it's not possible to be the world's best in every single area of our life or even strive for the best in every area of our lives. That's a recipe for burnout. So the question perhaps is instead, what might you feel uh, want intentionally to be better at in just one or two areas of your life in this particular season? The result, the research from Erickson and other scientists have shown that focused, deliberate practice adjusted based on feedback from experts can produce extraordinary results over time in a very particular targeted area. But a lot of one's success depends on learning the latest and most effective training techniques. Often when you see someone like come into a new field and just blaze past everyone, it's because they've developed some new trick, some new angle, some new training, and then everyone else else figures it out and everyone catches up and then someone else figures some new uh, method. Consider the world record marathon time in 1908. The fastest that any human being had ever run 26.2 miles. You'd think that'd be pretty impressive. In 1908, humans have been running marathons for a while. That time from 1908, that would barely qualify you today to enter Boston, the Boston Marathon in the 18 to 34-year-old male category. The reason is that these training techniques, they just keep improving. Consider the increasingly complex gymnastics moves that you see at the Olympics. Most of those moves were once thought to be impossible. The same with diving, the same with many other fields. And then they become just the standard uh, fare, the minimum required to even get in. The increasingly precise technical skills that are displayed by musicians that often far exceed um, Versions that in the past were considered the definitive performance. Now they would be, now those same definitive performances are used in musical schools to show, you know, errors and how you don't want to play a piece. Or increasingly long feats of memorization, such as Rajiv Mina of India, who memorized the first 70,000 digits of pi. The first 70,000. An accumulation that took him 24 hours and 4 minutes to recite. 
Such fantastic levels of memorization are, incre- are accomplished through these increasingly sophisticated mnemonic devices. A lot of them involve like imagining a giant mansion and you walk through this mansion and each room has things in it and each of those things remind you of the numbers or the letters or things like that. So it just depends. These are actually widely accessible mnemonic devices. It just depends on how you want to spend your time, how you want to spend your energy. You know, is, is that your idea of a good, you know, a good time? Memorizing the first time? Maybe it is. Uh, the Guinness Book of World Records is chocked full. It is filled with similarly amazing accomplishments. And it turns out that what you need to compete at that level is less natural ability and more a monomaniacal focus for an extended period of time. Now, I mean, it's of course true that, like, if I desired to, like, be in the NFL, that's probably not going to happen. But I could do, but if I just loved football, I could achieve peak performance for my body type in a, you know, a, a league that was of people that was like, you know, the equivalent of boxing. I'd need to be in like the, the featherweight football championship or whatever. But, you know, you can develop peak performance for your ability. On this whole topic of expertise, I should be sure to mention that back in 2008, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, popularized a notion of the 10,000-hour rule, uh, that you need to practice a skill approximately 10,000 hours to become an expert. Now, it turns out it's a little more complicated than that, and and Gladwell's admitted later that he oversimplified it a bit in um, Outliers, and he was drawing on Erickson's research. Most importantly, Erickson distinguishes in a way that Gladwell doesn't sufficiently between naive practice and deliberate practice. Naive practice is what I described earlier about my running hobby. So it's it's unfocused, there's no feedback, there's no fixing. So I could log 10,000 hours at my current level of running of a few hours a week, a few decades later, which is how long it would take me to reach 10,000 hours at that rate. Instead of becoming a world-class runner, I'd actually probably either be the same or likely worse because I'd be a few decades older. Uh, so uh, to master a skill requires not naive practice, but deliberate practice. It requires well-defined specific goals where you have focus the whole time you're doing it, where you have feedback, where you're continually tweaking those goals as you get better. And it requires you constantly getting out of your comfort zone to get better. And the real reason you need to put in 10,000 or more hours of practice is also you know, to become one of the world's best violinists or chess players or golfers is that the people you are being compared to, they've all put in 10,000 hours or more. So to compete at that level, you've got to have as much deliberate practice. Because it seems, as far as Erickson can determine, there is no point at which performance maxes out and additional practice does not lead to further development. Now, that's with the caveat. Of course, you've got to rest. You've got to rest your body and all of that. But you can just keep getting better if you want. And even if it's too late to become the world's absolute best and, you know, whatever your heart's desire is, we've seen so many examples of people in retirement. I suspect many of you know for yourself or among your friends and family, people in retirement excelling at fields that they had previously not been involved with at all. So, like, you know, people taking up karate or golf or violin, having never done any of those activities before, but in retirement, putting an intense amount of time into them and becoming quite great at it. It could be floral arranging. It could be painting. It could be whatever you're into. It all depends on what your goals are and how you want to spend your time. Uh, As the saying goes, how you spend your days is, of course, how you spend your life. 
Um, maybe you want to join the UUCF choir. The biggest obstacle may be committing first to some individual music lessons, you know, just learning some skills that you don't currently have. I'd also add that for a confluence of reasons, not all of us have the passion to pursue expertise in every area. I'm a decent pianist, guitarist, and triathlete, but I don't have currently the time and interest to pursue those skills at anywhere near the time and energy that I've invested in becoming a Unitarian Universalist minister and becoming a better Unitarian Universalist minister. I enjoy music and athletics, but not at the same level of time and commitment that I have in religion and in spirituality. Along the lines of cultivating expertise, Angela Duckworth, she's the author of Grit, um, she has a practice in her family called the hard thing rule. So that everyone, not only her children, but also she and her husband have to maintain a commitment and the whole family helps keep one another accountable. So everyone has to maintain a commitment to having one hard thing that they're doing in their life that requires daily deliberate practice. The corollary for them is that you can quit, but you can't quit till the season's over, till the tuition payment is up, or some other natural stopping point has arrived. So, um, so sh- starting in high school, for example, um, so during uh, elementary school, her children could, they had to commit to something for at least a year. And then into middle school, but starting in high school, she required her children to commit for at least two years to something. And the point for her is to find ways of cultivating commitment and of perseverance, which she calls grit, which she's found has been really crucial, that much more so than natural talent, grit, whether you can stick with it even when times get hard, that's what determines whether you succeed. And that one hard thing rule is how she's cultivating grit in her children as well as the people she studies. If you're curious, Duckworth's hard thing is psychological research professionally. She's always trying to get better at her job, not just phone it in, not just punch the clock. And yoga is her hard thing personally. Her husband's hard thing is real estate development. He's always trying to get better at it professionally. And for him, it's running personally. He's really tracking that and trying to get better. For one of her daughters, their hard thing is ballet. For the other, it's piano. For each of them, again, pursuing that hard things means not naive practice. You're not just, you know, phoning it in for 30 minutes or an hour um, to accumulate at a plateaued level. It's daily deliberate practice of focus and feedback and fix it accordingly. Starting last year, my current hard thing is recommitting to a meditation practice. I was really plateaued in my, in my meditation practice for years. And then this summer, I went on an eight-day meditation retreat. You know, if you want to accumulate 10,000 hours, it takes a really long time if you're just doing 30 minutes or an hour. But go on a meditation retreat where you're spending, you know, maybe eight hours a day meditating. You start, you know, you, you can write, you know, spend like, then do a day a month or something like that. You can start to accumulate a lot more. I'm also meeting months with a meditation teacher for feedback, and I'm really finding myself meditating in a much more focused way with feedback uh, and then changing it accordingly, doing techniques that I've never done previously, would likely not have done otherwise. At the same time that I'm committing more fully to that one hard thing, there are many other hard things that I'd like to do but just don't currently have the bandwidth for. I'm not training for a triathlon. You know, I go to the gym, but I go to the gym for like 30 minutes. You know, I don't go to the gym like three hours like people who who are um, super um, into it. I'm not currently working on publishing my dissertation. That's a hard thing I'd like to get back to. You know, I finished my dissertation. I haven't published it. But um, 
you know, but I am committed as well to that hard thing of getting better at this job professionally and at my meditation personally. You can only do so much if you want to also stay married and you know all of, all of those things. Sleep some, sleep's also important. So what are the parallels on this New Year's Day in your life? On this first day of the new year, what might you be feeling called to focus on in a more deliberate and focused way to, or to let go of? What's been a distraction for you in 2016? A very much underappreciated part of achieving goals is subtraction, not just addition. That we just t- try to take on more things without... Uh, taking on new things without letting go of one or more old things that are ta- so that we can free up time and space to give ourselves a, a really good chance of achieving our, our goal. As part of your discernment, uh, notice if one of the following areas just kind of really hooks you or really resonates with you as I talk about it this morning in this season of your life. Might there be something in your physical wellness that you want to deliberately focus on? Uh, you know, how, do you, how and when do you feel physically alive, your body uh, skillfully engaged? Uh, what, what could you do to feel that way more often? Or maybe it's emotional wellness for you. When or how do you feel emotionally engaged? Uh, dream about something that would add more joy to your life. Or intellectual wellness. How and when does your mind feel energized or buzzing with vitality? Or maybe it's financial wellness. What might you want to deliberately focus on that might make you feel more comfortable with your finances? Or social wellness. When do you feel connected and valued by others? Um, Vocational wellness. When or how do you feel fulfilled and optimistic at work? Or spiritual wellness, what individual or communal practice uh, makes you feel connected to your deepest self or what we use call the interdependent web of all existence.